Last week, I began a series I've entitled Profile of a New Testament Church, and I shared with you our original desire in founding Triumph Church in 1983 was to build a church that was a reflection of the book of Acts and the New Testament church of the first century. We still hold to that very dearly. And uh, I have said countless numbers of time through the years that if it's in the book of Acts, I want it in my life. And if it's in the book of Acts, I want it in our church. I still feel very strongly about that. You know, our desire is to build the very best spirit-filled church that we can build, be the best spirit-filled Christians that we can be. The term spirit-filled um, has certain distinctives and, and certain uh, um, points of distinction that uh, I think make us unique in certain ways. And so uh, throughout this series, I'm going to be talking to you about some of the distinctives of a New Testament church uh, in our desire to be, um, to go back to the original, because I believe the original uh, was permanent. Culture changes, time changes, so many things changes. And obviously, if you saw a church in the first century and then you visited us today, there'd be huge changes, huge changes. But the core and the bone structure never changes. And um, the, the components never change. Culture changes it, time changes it, progress changes it, technology changes, everything changes. But the core never really changes. So in this study, we're going back to some of the core, the, the bone structure of what Christ originally intended for his church to be. Now, you know, I've studied the New Testament church for a lifetime, and I'm still very intrigued by what it must have been like the first few years after the church was born. Remember how on a certain holiday called the Feast of Pentecost, um, the Spirit was poured out and uh, the church just exploded in growth. The first day it was 3,000. A few days later it was another 5,000 men. And before you know it, the whole city and the entire region became followers of Jesus. Now remember just a few days literally before the church was born, Jesus was arrested, falsely accused. He was tortured to death, literally. The disciples fled in fear that they would themselves be crucified or tortured. And uh, yet when the Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, the church was born and it just went viral. And so people that had previously questioned or disbelieved suddenly became fervent believers as they were converted in their hearts and became followers of Jesus. It would spread throughout Jerusalem and then through Judea and ultimately Samaria and to other parts of the world. But the first few years must, must have been extremely precious as the church was fresh, no one had any baggage, no one had any history, everybody was excited about Christ, everybody was a brand new creature in Christ. There were, there were wonderful signs and wonders and miracles taking place. The original 12 apostles were there teaching them the scripture and instructing them in the way. It was just absolutely marvelous. And the people of Jerusalem, uh, they favored the, the believers, and they honored them and loved them and celebrated with them. It was truly a wonderful and glorious time in those first few days. Well, the writer of the book of Acts, Dr. Luke, who was a physician, 
carefully recorded of what happened in the early church. And we find in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42, a great snapshot of what that early church looked like, what it must have been like uh, during the first few days of the first few years. And in that, we see the bone structure. We see the core. We see what the church is really made of in century after century after century. Of all the cultural changes, the modernization that will continue to take place, we go back to the original and look at the, the original components of what a new, church, new Testament church looks like, and that's what we want in our lives as well. So let's go to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, and I'm going to read these verses with you again. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared money with those in need. They worshiped together in the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. All the while, praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Can you say amen? amen. And so last week I mentioned to you how that we see 10 traits in these verses uh, of a New Testament church. I talked to you about being devoted to the apostles' teaching. They would simply gather in the temple grounds, an outdoor setting, and the people would come every day and one or two of the apostles would stand up in rotation and begin to teach the Bible, teach the scripture to the people. And the people came out with such a hunger for the word of God. And I believe that it's very important that we, you and I, maintain a hunger for the word of God, a hunger to learn and grow and to study the scripture. The world is full with information. The world is full of knowledge. I mean, you can Google anything and get an answer about whatever you're wanting to know. But there's nothing like God's Word, and we can't let all the information age swallow up our time, our attention, and our interest. We have to make sure that we're nurturing a hunger to study and to know God's Word. It's the easiest thing in the world to break the habit of studying the Scripture and learning. It's, it's an easy habit to break. But there's cost to breaking that habit. Whereas if we spend a lifetime studying the Bible, it's, it's rich and wonderful benefits to us all. Then they devoted themselves to fellowship. This was relationships. Uh, fellowship is about relationship. So they not only had a relationship with Christ, the risen Savior, but they had a relationship with one another. And the church became strong because they were relating and in relationship to each other. Then it said they were devoting themselves to the Lord's Supper or communion. And so they met together and they would remember the Lord's suffering, renew their commitment, their covenant, and remember the cross and the suffering that Christ uh, endured for our salvation. And so communion is about remembering the cross and how that regardless of how modern the world gets and how far away from uh, the cross in time we get, we must always be close to the cross, the place of our salvation, the place of ultimate sacrifice. So they stayed close to the cross. Now, let's move just a little further. It says they devoted themselves to prayer. 
They devoted themselves to prayer. It became a lifestyle. It became a priority. It became um, a, a meaningful experience for each and every one of them. They devoted themselves to prayer. It was an act of their will. You know, prayer starts out normally a discipline, something that you have to exercise self-will to pray. But after a while, if you keep exercising discipline and strong self-will, then after a while, it becomes a habit. And a habit is such that it doesn't require self-discipline. You know, if everything in your life required self-discipline, you'd probably run out. I know that I have a, a, a reservoir of self-discipline. I have a reservoir of inner strength that I can make myself do what I know I need to do even though I really don't want to. I have a reservoir. And I can only draw out of that reservoir in so many areas of my life because after a while, I run out of self-discipline. I run out of the strength to overpower my will and do what I need to do instead of what I want to do. So how do you live your life doing the right thing? You create habits because a habit is not something that you use your self-will and your determination for, but a habit is something you do automatically. And so by creating good habits, you save your self-discipline for those things you're trying to correct or tweak, fix, or alter because you don't have enough self-discipline to go to every area of your life. Let me give you some examples. How many of you have to use self-discipline to... Brush your teeth every morning. You don't use any self-discipline that? Why? Because it's a habit. And so when you, cre when you move from self-discipline to habit, you don't have to use your reservoir of self-discipline and you kind of put it on automatic pilot and then all you have to do is make sure you don't let life happen and interrupt your habit. And if for some reason that habit is interrupted, then you got to get back to it quick because you don't want to lose the habit. You know, isn't it amazing how good habits break easily and bad habits break hard? Isn't it amazing how that to create a good habit takes a lot of self-discipline and to create a bad habit only takes about a half a second? That's just life. So our self-discipline, our inner strength must be used to create good habits because we only have so much. And we have to use it to move our life forward and uh, deal with particular areas of our life. And so they devoted themselves to prayer, private devotion. You know, we have a story in Acts chapter 10 where Peter was um, on the rooftop waiting for dinner to be completed. And he was praying, the Bible said, and he fell into a spiritual trance. And God spoke to him great and powerful words while he was praying privately on his own. Prayer is done privately. It's also done corporately. Corporately is when you're with other believers, two or three or 10 or a thousand, and you're praying together. There's something powerful about praying uh, with someone. As a matter of fact, uh, when we are de devoting ourselves to prayer by having someone to pray with, it encourages your prayer life, makes it easier for you to pray, and it's that much less you have to draw out of that self-discipline reservoir. And so pray with others. When we pray, we pray fervently. We pray together. We pray corporately. We see that they gathered in homes in Acts chapter 12, and they prayed in a home, and the home was, was filled with the presence of God as the people prayed. And the Bible says that home shook 
because of the spiritual force and energy that was being released in that prayer. We also see in Acts chapter 16 where they gathered by the river in an outdoor setting. Hundreds of them, maybe even thousands, gathered to pray by the river. So it can be indoors or outdoors, by yourself or with someone. And then we see in Acts chapter 2 where they gathered in the temple area and they prayed there as well. And so the, the message is pray everywhere all the time with someone or without, but make prayer a part of your life. Everybody say, let's pray. You know, um, <clears throat> there's never been a significant, noteworthy move of God that was not preceded by passionate and intense prayer. Of every major outpouring of the Spirit or revival move that I've studied, someone prayed it through. Someone prayed before the first leaf on the tree ever blew. Someone prayed. It's, it's a staple. It's a bone structure. It's a part of what the church does. You know, um, prayer precipitates the move of the Spirit. And so in um, 35, I guess working on 36 years of pastoring triumph, you know, I watch us corporately. And as we pray more, the Spirit of God is more active among us, more wonderful supernatural things happen among us when we pray. And then the needle, needle, needle moves and we kind of get away from prayer. And you can just feel the difference in the services. It's true in my own personal life. The more I pray, the more strong and powerful and accurate my gifts are. The less I pray, the less accurate they are. The more I have to depend on the past. And so it's true individually and it's true corporately. Prayer, it precipitates the move of the Spirit. You know, I grew up with this simple little saying, and I proved it in my lifetime and in our church. No prayer equal no power. Little prayer equals little power, and much prayer equals much power. And it's just a simple way to remember that when you increase your prayer time, you release the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit in your life. And if you want to walk with God, it just takes time in prayer with God. So I want to encourage you in that way. Devote yourself to prayer. Devote yourself to prayer. Make it a way of life and something that is just a part of who you are and the way you spend your life. I choose more prayer and more power. How many of you choose more prayer and more power? You know, I believe there's a prayer meeting taking place here in our small groups. Wendy, am I right? On Wednesday nights, I believe. And they meet in the cafe. Wendy's leading that. And just to pray together. And so if you want to ramp that up in your life, this is a good place to be on Wednesday night. And just come and pray together and get those prayer wheel turnings and kind of grease the wheels a little bit. Because, um, you know, if, if, you, if you don't grease the wheels, they get sticky and they don't roll as smooth. But it's a good way to grease the wheel. Just one of the many um, uh, great small groups that are starting this week, and I want to encourage you with that. So we look at back what it was like in the, in the beginning. Well, they devoted themselves to prayer. It was a way of life, and it made all the difference in the world as God poured out his spirit on that city. Can you say amen? Notice in verse 41 it says, or 43, a deep sense of awe came over them all. A deep sense of awe. Other translations talk about the fear of the Lord, and I want to talk to you about that for just a moment. Uh, a deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. 
Let's talk about the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a reverence for God. It's an understanding and a respect for his authority and his power. That he is the creator of the universe. He's a judge of all mankind. Just a natural fear of the Lord. Now, there is a fear um, that is ungodly and unholy and not a part of our lives. The fear of the Lord is the positive. It's the plus. It's the necessary to fear the Lord. You know, we walk with God because we love him, but yet we fear him as well. You know, about 25, working on 26 years ago, my dad went to be with the Lord. And I remember growing up with dad. He was a loving father. I never, it never crossed my mind that he didn't love me and was not going to do good for me and treat me correctly. But I'm going to tell you, my, I had a fear of my father because I knew at any time he could exercise his authority and his responsibility as a father, and he could light me up on the backside of my body and make me regret whatever I had just done. So, you know, it wasn't incongruent, Bill, for me to fear him but love him, to know that he loved me, but yet he would discipline me. The Bible teaches that God disciplines every son that he loves. This builds a great sense of awe or fear of the Lord, and it's vital to our walk with God. We also see in the book of Acts chapter 9, verse 31, and if you'll turn that up there, it says, the church then had peace throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, and became stronger as the believers lived in the fear of the Lord. And with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, it also grew in numbers. So the second mention we have here of the fear of the Lord, the book of Acts, we see the church growing and expanding, and we see signs and wonders, and God's work takes place. The further we as a culture in America get away from the fear of the Lord, the respect of the Lord, giving him that proper place as our creator and Lord, the father of God and the one that we answer to and the one whose whose, uh, voice speaks with authority into our life, the one whose word is accurate and true and must be obeyed, the further we lower God in this culture, the less we're going to see the move of the spirit and the power of God because it's the fear of God that creates an environment where God can move and do great things. The early church flourished and and expanded and began to cover all of Israel and Samaria and then into the uttermost parts of the world because the people had the fear of the Lord. Well, I don't guess I speak to you much on this, so I want to do so with clarity and force today and say that the fear of the Lord is an important part of your relationship, and you cannot miss the fear of the Lord. Do you live in fear? No. Do you live in dread? No. Do you live in concern that he's suddenly going to punish you? No. But it is an awesome sense of respect and honor and putting God in his, first, in his rightful place. If we want to see what God wants to, if we want to see the things we want to see in God in our lifetimes, we have to walk in the fear of the Lord. And the apostles in the first century church model that for us. Now, it was in this, this atmosphere of awe and respect for God that signs and wonders began to take place in the church. Look again at what Paul would later write to the church at Rome in chapter 15, verse 19. Here's what he said. Yet I dare not boast about anything except what Christ has done through me, bringing the Gentiles to God by my message and by the way I worked among them. 
He said they were convinced by the power of miraculous signs and wonders and by the power of God's Spirit. In this way, I have fully presented the good news of Christ from Jerusalem all the way to. So my point is that Paul said, I convinced them by the power of God that was at work. It wasn't impressive sermons and convincing arguments. It wasn't proving someone else wrong and his message right, but it was about the power of God that was at work. The church grows, the church moves, the church is the church because of the powerful working of the Holy Spirit, working in hearts and working in lives. I believe in signs and wonders. Signs and wonders are a very much a part of the history of the church. And when God steps up to do something significant and wonderful, he begins to do signs and wonders. And these are things that make us wonder. These are things that capture our attention. These are things that we cannot be explained. These are things that make us look to God and say, look what God has done. They are things that are unique and wonderful that God chooses to do. They are signs and wonders. Now, signs and wonders is a, is a very broad terminology. It could be anything from a radical conversion as people give their heart to the Lord. It could be a, a miraculous healing. It could be a, a, a miraculous provision. A door opens up. It could be many things, but it encapsulates everything supernatural that God does for us in our lives. Now, you know, there were things that happened in the Bible that were awesome. They were awesome then, and they're awesome now. But today, we can explain so many things. For instance, they've gone back and studied the crossing of the Red Sea. You remember the story. Moses waved his rod, the sea opened up, and the Israelis walked across on dry land. And then after they got across, they closed right back up. And so they have gone to great extents to study the atmosphere and the, the area where they might have crossed and to figure out how that actually that could be a natural, amazing, phenomenal occurrence of um, nature. And so figuring it out. Then you remember the, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, how fire and brimstone fell from heaven. And so they go back and they study, how did that happen? Well, it was some sort of meteoric shower that took place. Um, but you see, the fact that we may look back and explain some of these things doesn't make it less miraculous. But we have the false idea that if it can be explained, it must not be a miracle. The truth is, every miracle has an explanation. It just, I may not have the explanation. Modern medicine may not have the explanation. Science in general may not can explain it. But there is an explanation because God created everything and he works within creation. And what would have been considered a miracle that, modern, that man could not ever have explained then might be explained today. But the explanation makes it no less of a miracle. And so when you get a miracle in your life, it doesn't mean that it has virtually no explanation. It doesn't mean that man's hand was not involved at all. You see, 
God uses man and he allows us to become a part of the miracle. If you're praying for a job, God uses someone to open that job up for you. If you're praying for healing, he may use someone to help bring that healing about in your life. Here's my definition of a miracle. You know, when I pray for something and it happens, sort of like I prayed, close to like I prayed, I thank God for a miracle. I believe he's a prayer answering God. So don't get all caught up in the explanation and say, well, if it can be explained and if man had anything to do with it, it must not be a miracle. Understand that man had something to do with every miracle that's ever happened. God used man somehow to bring it about. And so look in your life for signs, wonders, and miracles. And when you pray a prayer and something, the, the outcome is similar to what you prayed, give God glory and thank him for his miraculous hand in your life. Now, you notice I said more than once that if I pray a prayer and it happens similar to what I pray, I give God thanks for answering my prayer because God seldom answers my prayer just like I pray it. I pray for him to do one thing in a certain way at a certain time, and he just scratches my plan and makes up a better plan. So I, I'm not holding him to, to answering my prayer specifically like I prayed it, but the essence is the same and the answer is mine, even though he may go about it in a different way at a different timetable. Can I hear a great big amen? amen. So as New Testament believers, we believe in the supernatural power of God, how that he intervenes in our lives. And uh, we're not taking that divine intervention out of our lives and out of our church and out of our belief system. It's too enrooted in Scripture. If you don't believe in miracles and signs and wonders that God does in our lives, you have to cut out huge volumes of your New Testament, huge volumes of Scripture, because the New Testament virtually comes, comes alive with the supernatural power of God. I believe that our lives and our church comes alive with the supernatural. I already know that God's not going to answer every prayer I pray. I already know that. I pray every prayer with all the faith that I have. I stand on the Word of God, and I believe it with all of my heart. But I already know, Pastor Ronnie, that God's not going to answer all my prayer. And if He does, it's probably not going to happen when I wanted it to or just the way I wanted it to. Sometimes God's answer is, no, you can't have that. No, you can't do that. No, that doesn't fit. No is an answer. I know your kids don't believe it, but no is an answer. And so God answers my prayer with a no sometimes. I accept that. Sometimes I pray for people and they're miraculously healed and sometimes they're not. I know that going in. But every time I pray with faith and believe God. So it's not like that we're all wonder boys and girls and we can snap our fingers and pray ABC prayers and everything happens exactly like we prayed. That's not reality. The reality is that we pray and we intercede and we put our faith out there. We put our desires, our hopes and dreams out there. And God fits those into his plan and his purpose and he answers our prayer in wonderful ways. But it doesn't mean that we control God's activity and we can tell him what to do and what not to do, when to do it and how to do it. We pray humbly and with reverence to God, always submitting our desires, our hopes and dreams to what he's hoping and dreaming. Our ways to his ways, his time. Time, oh, supersedes our timing. And so keep praying, keep believing, and keep seeing good things happen in your life. I really believe that if we celebrate every small answer to a prayer, 
bigger prayers will be answered if we'll celebrate every small thing. But sometimes we don't celebrate small things because we're waiting for these great, big, wonderful, big things. And I believe it's important to celebrate every small thing, every small thing. Thanking God and giving God honor for the smallest things is a key to seeing bigger and greater things in your life. And so when something good or happens, say, thank you, Jesus. Thank the Lord. You know, people use four-letter words and, and, unsat- and, and untasteful language all the time around me. And I don't hesitate to use my biblical vocabulary around them. I, I, don't, I don't hesitate to say, thank you, Jesus. Thank the Lord. I, I, I don't hide that. You know, choose your vocabulary and make sure your vocabulary is filled with the Lord, filled with good things. And I encourage you in that way. Can you say amen? amen. So let me go just a little further. We're looking for the bone structure. We're looking for the core of what a New Testament church is. It went on to say that... Um, they, they shared everything they had. They went so far as to sell their property and their possessions, and they shared the money, and they brought it to the apostles, and then the apostles would distribute it as it was needed. And so you might ask, as I have been asked many times, Pastor, when you get saved and you get filled with the Holy Spirit, are you supposed to sell out everything you've got and give it to the church? No, no. There's no mandate for that. There's no mandate. The mandate is generosity. The mandate is sharing. But there's no mandate to sell your property and your possessions and give it to the work of God. Uh, You see, what would happen in a few years, the, the the pendulum of public opinion was going to shift. Now, right here, everybody thought it was great to be a Christian. Everybody thought the church was wonderful. Everybody wanted to go to church, and it was real popular. But the pendulum was going to shift And in just a few years, a very short time, Stephen would be stoned to death and become the church's first mortar. And then James, one of the apostles, would be killed with a sword. And the saints of God in Jerusalem that had just a few months and years before had been popular, wildly famous, suddenly were being chased out of the city and they were fleeing. And I am confident that God was setting the stage for the next season, which was a season of unpopularity and persecution. And by selling their possessions and distributing it, he was empowering each member of the body of Christ to literally flee with nothing but the clothes on their back and the money in their pocket and go to another place. And the Bible teaches you continue to study the book of Acts. It teaches how everywhere they fled to from the persecution in Jerusalem, they began to start churches and share the gospel and people were getting saved. And so instead of it being something that was happening just in the city of Jerusalem, it began to fill the whole landside. I just see the hand of God doing all this. It was a unique experience. You study church history. You study the history of God's people. There were other times in the history of the church And the last 2,000 years when the people of God in a unique time and situation were prompted by the Holy Spirit. They weren't pressured. They weren't forced. It was under no demand. But the people just from their own spirit sold what they had and gave it to the kingdom of God and caused the kingdom of God to go forward in that day. So don't don't be confused about that. Um, Nobody, the the scripture does not mandate we sell everything we have and, and give it to the church. But what it does mandate is generosity, generosity. You can't be a Christian and be tight. Well, I'm not questioning your salvation. I'm just saying it's totally incongruent. 
I'm, I'm just saying the whole essence of Christianity is loving, sharing, and giving, and helping to meet other people's needs. It's not socialism where we all have exactly the same amount and, and somehow the government takes care of us, but it's a matter of free will choice to give and to share openly and freely. Giving to the work of God means that the work of God is more important to me than my own work. That God's purpose and plan and God's business is more important than my business. Giving and sharing simply means that uh, what I have came from God anyway, and I'm just giving him back what he's already given to me. Generosity is saying um, that God is real and that his blessings are on our life. God is, generosity is saying that I trust my future to God. I trust him to take care of me. And even though I give this away, I know more is coming to me because I trust in him. That's what generosity is. I give because I know that there's money's coming behind it back to me because God is faithful and he will take care of me. Generosity for me begins with tithing, 10% of, of every increase that I have in income uh, uh, from week to week and month to month. 10% of that goes to the Lord. It's not a law. It's not a sin not to tithe, but it's a powerful principle that we release in our lives. Let me tell you something. Tithing is another level. Giving is a level. Being generous and spontaneous, generous, spontaneously generous to the kingdom is a level of faith and maturity. But tithing is another level. And people that live on that tithing level are at another level of devotion and commitment to Christ. I thank God for all the tithers at Triumph Church. Around the world, it's the tithers that, that carry the heaviest financial load for the kingdom of God. And I want to thank you if you're a tither, if you're a giver, for being generous and starting with um, sharing your blessing with the house of God and being a tither in this house. God bless you all. Tithing is extraordinary. It's wonderful. It's a mark of maturity. It's a mark of excellence. It's a mark of faith. It's a mark of devotion. And if you're not there, I hope that I can inspire you to reach for that next level and become a tither um, in the house of God. God bless you so much. Now, we're going to go back over it. I'm going to give you some of the things. I'm finished for this morning, but I'm going to give you some of the things that we're, we're talking about, the profile of a New Testament church, these 10 characteristics. First of all, they had a hunger for the Word of God. They studied and were taught God's Word. They had a deep devotion to relationships. They built relationships. It wasn't just a, a crowd or a gathering, but they were relating to one another deeply and intimately. And then there was communion, taking us back to the cross, always uh, facing the cross. And then there was prayer, devoted to prayer. And then there was uh, the supernatural power of God. And then there was generosity. And so uh, there's others that I'll bring to you next week. But these are just some of the things that I see are distinctives that you and I need to have in our lives and in our church. This is the foundation. This is the bone structure. And this was what we want at Triumph Church. Can you say amen?